Now, do you remember when you were a child and you couldn't wait to grow up? <laughs> if you were anything like me, you were seven going on 17. I remember the different stages. I could not wait to be 13 because that meant that I would get to be a teenager, and teenagers got to do anything that they wanted. My son, Bubby, still believes that. He comes up to me all the time, and he says, Daddy, when I get old enough to be a junior high, they're not teenagers in his mind, they're junior highs, when I get old enough to be a junior high, then I can light fires anywhere I want to. <laughs> because that's what it means to be a teenager. You get to light fires anywhere you want to. I remember I couldn't wait to be 16 years old because that meant that I got to drive. I couldn't wait to be 18 year old because that meant I didn't have to listen to my parents anymore, but they would still have to pay my bills. <laughs> we know the classic freedom without responsibility, right? Some older and wiser people would say to me though, don't grow up too fast. Growing up isn't always easy. It's an exciting time, but it's also a time that involves some pain. You can think about it physically. If you grew up quickly, like a weed, you experienced pain in your joints. But there's also the, the non-physical pain, the pain of trying to find your way in the world, the pain of thinking that you can do things before you can actually do them, and then you go through the experience of the school of hard knocks. There's also the pain of that crashing wave of responsibility hitting you. Things like money and bills and, and job, what are those? Responsibility hits you in a way you've never experienced it before. Growing up is exciting, but there's also pain with it. I think that this analogy applies to our spiritual growth and to the growth of the local church. I get excited every Sunday I come here because I see God doing a lot of things. He is growing Osterville Baptist Church. But I also take pause to pray because I know with growth comes pain. Or I think of that young, excited Christian who runs up to you and they say something like this, Pastor Rob, I just can't wait to grow in the Lord. I want to grow, 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 grow. And you smile. It's so exciting. But you also take pause because you know that there's a little bit more involved than just some added time of Bible study and prayer. Growth involves pain. It involves struggle. It's not always easy to be a Christian who is growing. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, Paul's choice of words explains their situation to us. Throughout the letter, he uses words like affliction, suffering. Uh, it's the same word that would be applied in the New Testament to Jesus' suffering on the cross. Persecution, being hindered. He's basically saying to us, welcome to the real world. The real world Life as it really is. Life in the raw. This morning, Paul will say to us, though, that no matter the adverse circumstances that we face as Christians or how intense the enemy attacks, the Lord has provisions that he has given us, resources, so to speak, to keep us strong so that we can grow and we can enjoy growth and we can continue forward in this Christian life. And in fact, Paul will show us three different resources. We're going to look first at verse 13 of chapter 2, and we're going to see that the first resource is a certain faith 
God's word in us. Listen to this text. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I've been encouraged over the years to see that people will endure hardship to face and stand up for right causes. American soldiers put themselves in harm's way for the sake of this ideal called freedom. Parents would gladly give up their lives for their children because they believe that raising up a child is an important cause. I think of the men and women who suffer jail and persecution and physical harm for the sake of the civil rights movement because freedom and equality were ideals that were worth fighting for. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This message is the most God-honoring, grace-giving, freedom-giving, life-changing message that humanity has ever been given. It is so important that God the Son stepped out of eternity in order to deliver it to humankind. C.S. Lewis has said this, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So the word of God, this message of reconciliation between God and man, has the power to save us. It has the power to transform us from the inside out. So the question that we all need to ask of this word that God has given to us is, what do you do with such a powerful, transformational message? And Paul highlights three right attitudes that we should have towards the word of God. The first is that we need to recognize its full worth. If you look at the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson says, when you got the message of God we preached, you didn't pass it off as just one more human opinion, but you took it to heart as God's true word to you. Warren Wiersbe has said, we must never treat the Bible as any other book, for the Bible is different in origin, character, content, and cost. I want you to take your Bible just for a moment, hold it in your hands, and think about this. You are holding the word of God. In 2 Timothy Paul says that this book is God-breathed as if the words on the page came from the very breath of God. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about how that process had occurred. Men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the word of God is true, timeless, transforming, and trustworthy. Think about that. One of my spiritual heroes is William Tyndale. In my office, I 
put up certain things in order to remind myself of why I do what I do. So right behind me at my desk is Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, where Paul talks about why he struggles in ministry. Then I have a map of the world to remember that the gospel is a global message for all of mankind. And I want to get a picture of William Tyndale in front of me. And he's going to remind me how precious it is that I have a Bible translated in English. I want you to imagine that you live in a day and an age where you have no access to the scriptures. So there's no Google searches, there's no multiple translations that you can lay side by side by side. In fact, the only access that you have to the word of God is in a church building, and the word of God that is spoken to you is spoken to you in Latin. And here's another problem, you don't speak a lick of Latin. Jim and Sandy Baker Uh, at the primetime luncheon, made a very profound point. Sandy stood up and she asked the question, who speaks English as a second language? And Tun Chai raised her hand, and Sandy asked her, Tun Chai, what is it like to be able to read the word of God in Thai? And Tun Chai said, it's like God is speaking directly to my heart. In fact, translators, when they're translating the scriptures, say that they're translating them into people's heart language. So here is William Tyndale. For 12 years, he would go into exile. He would avoid multiple plots on his life in order to be able to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. And it's amazing what happened when he did this. Merchants, students, tailors, weavers, bricklayers, peasants, purchased copies of the New Testament for one week's wage, three shillings and two pence. Which begs the other question. Would we be willing to purchase the word of God if it cost one week's paycheck? And not just like the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're talking here about the New Testament in and of itself. Imagine if you just made $11 an hour for 40 hours a week. Would you pay $440 to have a copy of the New Testament? I think you would. I know the people here value the word of God, and it is worth that, if anything. Tyndale's commitment would ultimately lead him to be executed. It was on October 6, 1536, that Tyndale was paraded before an angry mob. They took him and bound him onto an iron cross. They chained him at his legs and around his neck. They sprinkled uh, brush around him and then gunpowder to surround him. And they say that just before Tyndale breathed his last breath, that he looked up to the heavens and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, Open the eyes of the king of England. I'm not going to get into the brutality of his execution, but then he went to be with the Lord Jesus. Steve Lawson writes that less than a year after Tyndale's death, Thomas Cramner, who had become the Archbishop of Canterbury and Oliver Cromwell, persuaded Henry VII to approve the the publication of the first English Bible. And so one year later, and then three years later, they had finished this translator, and one writer comments that it was like a stream of English Bibles had come into England, like a mighty river continually bearing new waters into the sea. And think about it now, 500 years later, this river is still flowing, and God's word is still pouring forth into our hearts. Do you recognize the value of this 
book. If it is the very word of God, if it has the power to save from death to life, if it has the power to transform us, then we devalue it at our own hurt. So how do we honor a book like this? Well, Paul gives a second right attitude. You fully embrace it. You see, the the Thessalonians also gave the word of God access to their hearts. There's two words that uh, he uses to talk about the way that they had embraced the word of God. You'll see that he says that they received it, and secondly, they accepted it. The first means to accept it from another person. So they received that message from Paul. The second talks about giving it access or warmly welcoming it with your embrace. One idea has the idea of hearing with the ears. The second has the idea of hearing with the heart. Both are necessary. You know, I believe that people today are looking for a word, are looking for a truth that they can believe in, that they can embrace. We live in a world where there's a lot of talk, isn't there? Abundant talk, and most of it cheap. The Thessalonians lived in this same type of world. So Paul comes in and he preaches this life-giving message and they embrace it. They took this message and they made it a part of the very fabric of who they were. How do you do this? Well, it goes past just absorbing scripture in little sound bites. And we live in a world where we interact with things through sound bites, 60-second clips. It's like saying this in the morning, Lord, I'm ready to relate to you this morning. You have 60 seconds starting now. What do we hope to accomplish in those 60 seconds? And then we just move on to the next thing? When you read the scriptures and how they talk about interacting with the Bible, Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3, gives us an idea. The righteous person delights in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted alongside of a riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their lives never wither, and they prosper in all that they do. This idea of meditation that they're talking about is like spiritual digestion. It's a slow process that takes time. So what happens if you don't allow digestion to take its full course physically? You get malnourished, you get sick, you starve, you die. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, a Bible which is falling apart usually belongs to someone who is not. Third attitude, you do what it says. James chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. You know, when we do preaching here at Osterville Baptist Church, we are regularly thinking about these three attitudes. We want us to look at the scriptures as the very words of God. We want us to embrace them into our very heart and core, and we want to do what the scriptures say. I think Soren Kierkegaard's words are very helpful when we think about what preaching is. He says, people have the idea that the preacher is an actor on stage and they are the critics blaming and praising him. What they don't know is that they are the actors on the stage and he is the, merely the prompter standing in the wings feeding them their lines. 
That's the idea of what preaching is. So do you want to know the secret of growing in the Christian life to making it through the struggles and the pains? You live out what the Bible says in the everyday tumble of life. You live out what the Bible says in the comfort of your home. Students, you live out what it says in the classroom. At the supermarket, when you have a cart full of groceries and you're looking at three lines and they're packed, you live out what the Bible says. When you're in the business world and you struggle with your partner, when you're on the the floor in a factory and your supervisor, well, they don't make you too happy. Wherever you are, whoever you are, you live out the word of God. Let's talk about a second resource A courageous family, God's people around us. Look with me at verses 14 through 16 in the text. Paul says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, who drove us out and displeased God and opposed all of mankind by hindering us, and here's the problem, from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now I just want to take a moment with those last two verses. Some have looked at these two verses and said, well, Paul's getting a little anti-Semitic here. He's espousing hatred towards the Jewish people. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul loves the Jewish people. He is being descriptive of the way that they have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is a people who have received revelation from God in the Old Testament, and they couldn't see God's coming in the person of his son. Now that idea of wrath, if you look at verse 16, a lot of us hear that word and we think God is exploding in anger. That's not it. Wrath is a measured, a measured response to sinful or unjust behavior. So that's what God is doing when he expresses his wrath. Now I want to go back with you to verse 14. This is kind of the core of the applicational thought that Paul has for us. You see, he's saying to us that the Christian life is not a manicured bed of roses. It's not all smooth sailing off into the sunset. In fact, it can be downright hard at times. He talks about this idea of imitating the other churches there in verse 14. And by imitate, he doesn't mean that the Thessalonians went off to Judea and sat in their church service and started taking notes on what they were doing. Oh, I really like that contemporary song that they just played this week. We should bring that back to us. Or that translation of the Bible is really readable. Let's bring it back home. No, the idea here that he's talking about is that these churches are following suit of the Christians in Judea who are enduring persecution and suffering. What does it mean to be persecuted? Persecution comes in all shapes and sizes. See, a lot of us, when we think of it, we think of physical persecution, someone being physically harmed or thrown into jail or even killed for their faith. While this is certainly true and there's certainly Christians all over the world who experience this and we should be praying for them, there's also other forms of persecution. Persecution is the caricature that society creates about Christians. 
I know you've heard it. All Christians are hypocrites and judgmental. They are bigots. They are ignorant, anti-intellectual, intolerant, narrow-minded. I could go on. Now certainly some Christians deserve those words, right? But to say something like all Christians I mean, I'll let you interact with the old logic there. All Christians, bigots. Many of you have been living under the pressure of persecution for years and you didn't even recognize it for what it was. In Peter's first epistle, he doesn't use the word persecution to talk about what they're experiencing. He uses the same word that Paul uses here, suffering. And here's a crucial point. As you look through that epistle, he never talks about the persecution as being physical in nature. It's always verbal or it's a form of ostracism that comes. Jesus in Luke 6, talks about the same thing. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So there's another form of persecution, isn't there? But not only that, not only do we suffer from a rhetorical pressure that comes from society, we also suffer from the pressure to conform from society, which is almost inescapable. We're regularly bombarded with the messages and the images that seek to press us into a mold that is contradictory to God's moral or ethical standards. You tracking with me there? I remember when I traveled to India, I was having a conversation with a man named Dr. Chaco, an amazing man of God. This man had started ministries into prison ministries, orphanages. He also had set up a a seminary where he became the president of that seminary, and he trained up pastors, hundreds of pastors, into teaching the word of God, proclaiming the gospel, and knowing that they would go onward and probably suffer for the sake of that gospel. I remember having a conversation with him in regards to persecution, and I said to him, Dr. Chaka, what does it feel like to know that every time that you stand up to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, you could be harmed for doing so? And it must be even worse to think that you're sending these men off to preach the gospel, and they could be harmed for the message. I kid you not, he looked me in the eyes with complete seriousness, and he said these words. I would rather suffer the form of persecution that I endure than the form of persecution that you endure. I have been to America. I have seen that the messages and the images in this country are regularly telling you to abandon Christ, to be unfaithful, to live an immoral life, and it is overwhelming. I couldn't get away from it when I was in this land. Now, I do struggle to imagine that we are worse off than them. In fact, I've always imagined that we had it pretty easy. But I did take his point to heart because we are most vulnerable when we don't recognize the danger that surrounds us. And if we're walking around with our head high Not thinking of this or that, that's right when the enemy attacks. So how how does God use the family in order to encourage us and to keep us strong? I think there's a couple of applications that we can derive from this passage 
and I would like to express those to you. The first is this idea that we're talking about every Sunday. We've been promoting this for two years now. If Dr. Chaco is right, and more importantly, if God's word says that you will experience persecution, and it does, then the view, um, or we should view Sunday gatherings as an opportunity to catch our breath. It's helpful to be infused by the biblical worldview in the midst of the battle. Secondly, spend time with courageous believers. I believe that courage promotes more courage. When you surround yourself with people who are courageous for Jesus Christ, you will feel compelled to be courageous as well. Some of the people that have inspired me have been my parents, Harry Fletcher, one of our missionaries, Eric Briscoe, who shares the gospel and street evangelism, J.J. and Melissa Alderman, Who inspires you? Thirdly, read about the persecuted church. Stay connected to what God is doing throughout the world. Understand that they endure persecution that we might not, that's physical. Uh, Statistics in the Pew Research have said that 75% of the world's populations live in areas of the world that are severely restricted by way of religion. And many of those people who live in those areas are Christians. So pray for them, be inspired by them. Remember that you are not just a part of a local church, you're also a part of a a global church. And as you see these things, God will encourage you and he will strengthen you in your faith. Third resource. A constant hope. God's glory before us. Look with me at verses 17 through 20. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory Enjoy. I love catching a glimpse of the Apostle Paul's heart. If you look at that word torn away, the Greek is orphanizo, which means to make an orphan. So here he is painting a picture of a child that is forcibly ripped away from its parents' arms. Some of you might Experience this in part when you take your kids down to the nursery and they're crying, mommy, mommy, mommy. It's heart-rending, isn't it? You couple this image with the metaphors that Paul used in the passage last week of being a mother and a father, and you catch this glimpse that Paul put people first. People before programs. Never lose sight of that. I think that we can get so busy in church activity, doing church work, busy, 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 running around like a chicken with our head cut off that we forget the most precious thing that God has filled this room with. You and me. People. That's why God calls us to come and be together and not to watch that TV preacher that can knock it out of the park every week. God loves people. And we're always better together. 
And this is why Paul is fighting to get back to the church. Listen again to what he says. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but then notice what happened. But Satan hindered us. Now, why did Satan bother? I mean, who cares if Paul makes it back to Thessalonica? It's a a little fledgling church. Who cares if he makes it there? Why would the enemy of God, the enemy of salvation, the enemy of humanity bother to prevent Paul from going there? Which begs the question, why would he bother to keep us from being in regular attendance of the local church? Can I say something? I'm going to. (laughs) If church is just a casual gathering that I come to every now and then as it fits into my schedule or how I feel that particular morning, or if it's just a place where I gather to meet friends and to hear biblical niceties, then why does the enemy spend so much time trying to absolutely destroy it? You know, if you are the enemy of someone, do you attack something that is peripheral or casual to the heart of your enemy? No. You aim right for dead center. You take out the very thing that is the the engine or the driving force of that enemy. And that is the local church. The church is is God's missional engine for advancing the kingdom of heaven here on this earth. That's why Satan loves when we fight and we get mad about inconsequential things. That's why he loves when we make remarks against leadership. That's why Satan loves to see us grow apathetic towards serving and growing. The church is God's primary engine for his mission. It is the hope of the world. And if we can't see that, then we're in serious trouble. Because guess who can see that? Verses 19 and 20. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you For you are our glory and our joy. Now notice earlier that Paul speaks of a crown. So this crown is a simple garland or wreath that was worn by a victor over their head as a top prize for winning an athletic competition. You can think of it much like the gold medal that an athlete receives in the Olympics. He says to them that the people themselves when he stood before the Lord Jesus Christ, would be his crown. Isn't that amazing? Paul can look down the tunnel of time and he can say that any investment that I made into another human being would be worth it. He would stand before the Lord Jesus. He would relish and smile and laugh and take delight in all the lives that he saw changed by the power of the gospel. And the same is true for you while you are waiting. Just imagine the scene with me. Time as we know it now, 
has come to its conclusion. You are standing before the Lord Jesus Christ and he has been victorious. And to your right and to your left, you see different individuals with you. You look to your right and you see that college roommate who shared the gospel with you first and led you to the Lord. And then you look over that way and you see one of those children that you raised and you poured and prayed for and they've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then that, that co-worker is standing over there who you'd been praying for for years and they accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they led someone else to Jesus Christ. So you look around you in your impact zone and literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people are standing there with you. Don't you think you'll be smiling? Now let's think about that same scenario. This time you're standing before the Lord Jesus Christ and you're all by yourself. Really deflating, isn't it? It has been said only two things in this world are eternal. The Bible and people. And if that is true, and it is, It only makes sense to build your life around those things that will last forever. Those things that last forever. God's word will last forever. People last forever. Everything else, everything else disappears. What does this mean? I think that it means that we live life backwards from that day when we stand in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask ourselves the question, will this matter 10,000 years from now? You know, most of the things that we worry about, that we're working towards, won't matter three weeks from now, let alone three months from now, let alone three years from now. But here, 10,000 times 10,000 years from now, You can take great joy in knowing that if you invested your life in people and the word of God, even if it meant great opposition along the way, that it will have been worth it while you were waiting. Let's pray.